And Father, as we now come to your word, we thank you for your word, and we remember that your word is inerrant, it is inspired, it is infallible. Nothing can assail it, nothing can question it, nothing measures up to it. And so we ask, O Lord, that you would use the preaching of your word to nourish our hearts, to inform our minds, to strengthen us as your people, to grow us in Christ's likeness. We pray, O Lord, for our children as they hear your word preached. And we pray, Lord, that in your time, the seeds of the gospel that fall on their hearts as they come to hear the word preached week in and week out would bear a rich, rich harvest. We pray, O Lord, for our nation and we pray that you would raise up a generation of children who love you and who are devoted to serving you all their lives. Use this time, O Lord, to feed your sheep and to build your church for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 17. We are continuing our study of what we call Christ's high priestly prayer. Uh, Of course, once again, uh, this is a prayer that follows the pattern that was established in Leviticus chapter 16, where the high priest was to, uh, by himself, go into the Holy of Holies and consecrate himself, pray for uh, the other priests, and then pray for the people of the assembly. And so, in this chapter, we see Christ praying for himself first, then praying for his disciples, and he will, uh, when we get to verse 19, he'll begin praying for the church as a whole throughout the age. But today, we're going to be in John chapter 17, verse 13, which uh, seems like, wow, just one verse, but there's a, a very important subject in this verse that doesn't get talked about enough, I fear, um, it's one of those things perhaps that we don't understand. It's one of those things that we struggle to find. That thing that I'm referring to is Christian joy. Christian joy. What is it? Uh, how do we experience it? What does that even mean? We're going to talk about all those things today. You know, once upon a time, most people were expected to kind of have a working knowledge of how their vehicle worked. Uh, it used to be that, you know, most of your average people, especially men, even though they had no experience or training as a car mechanic, could simply pop open their hood, take a look inside, and they could pretty much diagnose what the problem was. All the parts were just laid out and visible, and they were big and bulky, and you could see where something was going wrong. And I'd say that in, in most places, if you didn't know how to, uh, t- to look in the, uh, the hood of your car and diagnose what the problem was, you at least knew a few people who did. Uh, but this was all before vehicle manufacturers started making engines smaller and smaller, more and more compact. And as engines got smaller and more compact and manufacturers started moving things all over the place in the engine so they weren't 
uh, as accessible as they once were, uh, so went the age when you could just pop open your hood and look and diagnose what the problem was. Uh, as they have moved things around, maybe you've had some weird experiences like I have. I, I once had to change a car battery, uh, but I had to spend nine hours at the car dealership to have that done. Walmart couldn't do it because the engine literally had to be lifted out of the vehicle in order to access the battery. And only the car dealership, how convenient, only the car dealership uh, had the equipment that was necessary to do that. Uh, By the way, I don't think they stuck with that design. I can't imagine that that would last. Uh, But what a headache to spend nine hours at the car dealership to change a battery when once upon a time it was a five-minute ordeal. But it was around the same time when manufacturers were making engines smaller uh, that they started putting computers and microchips into vehicles in order to diagnose engine problems. Uh, you might not believe it, but cars haven't always had those lights that come on when there are no visible symptoms at all that anything is about to go wrong with your car. Uh, for, uh, for example, a few months ago, I started my pickup truck up, and uh, a display came on on the dashboard telling me that two of my tires had low pressure. Uh, it even told me which tires they were. It even told me how much pressure there was in those tires. I mean, once upon a time, this was like science fiction. That could never happen. Uh, you know, but, but that's an example of, of how useful these alerts are that are in the, the vehicle maintenance program. Nowadays, if you want to know what's wrong with your car, either it'll tell you or uh, your mechanic, uh, he'll just plug a computer into your car and it tells, your car tells their computer what's wrong with it. But Christian joy is a lot like a vehicle maintenance system. One of the first indications that something is going wrong in a Christian's life is they are lacking in Christian joy. That's one of the first indications that there's something wrong in the proverbial engine. And when we start trying to find joy in other things, things of this world, things other than God, things other than what God has provided, things other than what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, when we start looking to all these other things, it's a warning that you had better get yourself to a place where you can get a diagnosis, whether that's popping the hood up or whatever, so to speak. Joy... And I'm talking about Christian joy. There is a difference between Christian joy and worldly joy, but Christian joy is something that should be abounding in every Christian. And so when it's not abounding in every Christian, it is like that warning light on your dashboard. In fact, there's no reason for joy, Christian joy, to not be abounding and abundantly present within us. And I say that because Christ not only told us how to have joy to the fullest, but He prayed that we would have joy. And so as we continue our study of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, let's remember that we are in the part of the prayer where Jesus is praying for His 11 disciples. Do you think Jesus wanted His 11 disciples to have joy? 
Absolutely. Why else would he have said things like, uh, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. That's what he said in John 15.11. And he also said, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. That's what he said back in chapter 16, verse 20. Of course, that second reference uh, of joy referred to the grief that they would be feeling about the death of Jesus, but the joy that they would be feeling because of Christ's resurrection from the grave three days later. In the verses which have led us up to the point that we're at today, Jesus has prayed that the Father would keep the disciples. That's what we looked at last week, that he would preserve them. What that means is that their faith would endure until the end. It means that they would not be lost, that those who are saved cannot and will not ever fall away completely from the faith. That's what he prayed in the verses that led up to this point. But perhaps there's a connection between what Jesus prayed in those verses, in verses 11 and 12, that that his people would be kept in his name. Uh, There's a connection between that and when he prays in this next verse for the disciples to have joy. But not just any joy. He does not want them to have worldly joy. He does not want us to have worldly joy. He prays that they and we, by extension, would have His joy. His joy. Jesus' joy. So the point that this verse will make very clear for us is that every Christian has every reason to experience Christian joy in every circumstance. Let me say that again. Every Christian, every Christian has every reason to experience Christian joy in every circumstance of life. So Jesus continues with his prayer in verse 13. He says, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Now the reason that Jesus is praying for the protection and for the the keeping and the, the preservation of His disciples is because of His departure from the world. He knows that He's about to die. He knows that He will be arrested, that He will be tried, that He will be crucified, and that on the cross He will lay His life down for His sheep. On the following day, this is what would happen, and he knew it. He would be buried. Of course, he'd raise three days later. But he is departing from the world. That's why he's praying these things for his disciples. And the disciples would be left behind. They would be left in the world. They were to be in the world, but they were not to be of the world. Perish the thought that they would be of the world. And the same with us. Now, there's, there is quite a bit of debate about what, uh, what could be meant by these things when Jesus says, and these things I speak in the world. Uh, it's possible that he's referring just to this entire prayer uh, that we find throughout John chapter 17. Uh, that's, that's certainly possible. I don't think anybody can completely eliminate that possibility. But the the position that makes the most sense to me is that this is a reference to the farewell discourse, that he's praying about the, the things that he prayed. Uh, he's referring to the things that he referred to 
back in chapters 14 to 16, uh, where he gave what we call the farewell discourse. It was his final teaching to his disciples. And he gave that to them in order that they would have joy. His joy. Not worldly joy, but that they would have His joy. That they would be confident about what was coming. That they would have assurance that things were going to be fine. The farewell discourse was therefore filled with promises. With one promise after another. Glorious promises of how He would go to see the Father and how He would ask the Father and He and the Father would send the Holy Spirit. And through the witness of the church and the Holy Spirit, not only would the disciples be led into all truth, but so would countless others. Again, it's worth remembering that Jesus had said to the disciples earlier that evening in chapter 15, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Again, that my in there is very significant because there is a joy that people find outside of Christ. Although it's a fleeting joy, it's a worthless joy. It's a joy in things that we shouldn't necessarily feel joy about. But it wasn't just His disciples whom Jesus desired to have His joy. He desired for all of His people throughout the age of the church to have joy. How do I know that? Because joy is such an important thing in what we have record of the early church of. Throughout the New Testament alone, the verb, uh, which means to rejoice or to be joyful, uh, is found 72 times. And the noun, uh, joy, is found 60 times. That's a lot of references to joy throughout the New Testament. So it's not just for Jesus' disciples, it's for us too. Joy is something that we too, Christ's joy is something that we too should experience. Now, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, let's address one of the elephants in the room that we all know is there. Uh, That is one of the questions or one of the issues that people might have, but which people are maybe a little bit apprehensive about raising. Uh, One of the elephants in the room is that most of us are probably not too sure exactly what joy even is. I wouldn't be at all surprised if, for example, we were to, to, to ask most Christians what joy is and if their response was uh, basically to say that it's just another word. It's synonymous with the concept or the word uh, happiness. Uh, it's not. Let's just start with that from the outset. Joy is not the same thing as being happy. Uh, Not in the Scriptures. I understand that those terms in modern vernacular, in modern English language, are essentially synonymous. They're essentially interchangeable. But in Scripture, that is not the case. They are not interchangeable. They are very different words, very different concepts. So what is joy? Specifically, what is Christian joy? Now there are a couple verses found throughout the New Testament that I think will help us to understand this word or this concept a little bit more clearly. The first is James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, where James writes, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. 
knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What a radical thought that we would consider it all joy when we're going through difficult times. It can't mean happiness then, right? What James is saying here is that our trials test our faith, and the testing of our faith has a strengthening effect on our faith, which enables us to endure. And James is saying that all of this is very important as part of our sanctification, which is a major focus of James's letter. And therefore, we are able, indeed we are commanded, to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. A second verse that I think helps clarify the meaning of Christian joy is found in Luke chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, where Jesus says to the disciples, Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, their fathers used to treat the prophets. It's also helpful to remember that we're told in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that Jesus, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross. Uh, This verse, uh, all these verses, but this verse especially, makes it completely obvious that the words joy and happiness are not interchangeable. They do not mean the same thing at all. Was Jesus happy on the cross? Are, Are people happy when they're being persecuted or when they undergo trials? Of course not. Jesus on the cross was in agony. He cried out to the Father, Why have you forsaken me? Those those aren't happy words. He wasn't happy on the cross. But He had a sense of joy. He was nevertheless able to experience joy in that moment because as He was on the cross, what was sustaining Him was His fellowship with the Father until that moment when He cried out, Why have you forsaken me? Paul instructed us to rejoice in the Lord always. And he he reiterates it again. I say rejoice, which means be joyful. And yet, the Bible recognizes that there are times for all things. There are seasons for all things. There are times in which mourning and sadness and lamenting are completely appropriate. Indeed, Jesus Himself is referred to as a man of many sorrows. So clearly, let's understand just this much from the outset. Happiness and joy are biblically not the same at all. So what is joy? I'll give you a definition. In a nutshell, Christian joy is the inner, confident contentedness that the Christian has because the Christian knows that Christ is in him, that Christ is with him, that Christ is for him, and that God is faithfully directing and ordaining every aspect of his, the Christian's life, working out all of his promises and his purposes. I'll say that again. Christian joy is the inner confident contentedness You might say it's a sense of satisfaction that the Christian has because the Christian knows 
that Christ is in him, with him, for him, and that God is working out everything for the Christian's good. All of his purposes and promises are coming to fruition. This is why we can consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. This is why we can leap for joy when people hate us and scorn us for the sake of Christ and His Gospel. And this explains the joy that Christ felt upon the cross. Did Christ know that the Father was working out His purposes? Yes! He was completely confident in that. That's where His joy was. He knew that it was the will of the Father. He knew that His death was necessary for the redemption of of sinners that if he didn't bear the sins of his people nobody could nobody else would fit the job description only he could do it because they were unable to themselves and therefore they would never be reconciled to God joy is an active thing it's an active fellowship it's an active confidence that we have in God it's not something that you're just going to feel automatically all of the time. There will be times when you do. There will be a lot of times when it's not automatic at all. When in fact, it seems like it's the furthest thing away from you. But it is something that if you are in Christ, it is something that is rightfully yours. But it's something that sometimes you have to work for it. Sometimes you have to fight to live in it, to walk in it, and to experience it. That's why it's often given as an imperative. It's never given as a suggestion, by the way. It's never, hey, you know, you might think about having a more joyful spirit. Like, hey, change your attitude over there, mister. No, it's always given as an imperative. Rejoice in the Lord always. Not a suggestion, a command. Rejoice. So it's something that we sometimes have to be very intentional about pursuing and finding. In fact, Christ is going to pray that His church will be characterized by several different things in the verses to come. Uh, so that's kind of a pattern that we're entering into in this part of the prayer. In verses 14 to 17, which we're going to be looking at next week, He prays that His disciples and, and us, and we by extension, would be characterized by holiness. In verse 17, that we would be characterized by truth. In verse 18, he prays that we would be faithful to our mission. In verses 21 to 23, he prays for the unity of the church throughout this age. And then in verse 26, he prays that we would be characterized by agape love. But the first characteristic that Jesus prays that His church would be known for is joyfulness. His joyfulness, specifically. And my fear is that the average person, if they were to go into a church and, and, and look around and get to know some people, they might say that we're characterized by a lot of, of, of different things, but they wouldn't have the slightest idea, I fear, that Christians are supposed to be joyful people. 
Joyfulness is often very evident in new believers. Their freedom in Christ is still fresh, as is their desire to know and to learn uh, about and to trust in God more fully. In that sense, Christian joy, in a way, is kind of like a Christmas present. Let me ask you guys this. How many of you guys, how many of you all can remember everything that you got for Christmas last year, six months ago? Just six months ago. Now, if you, if you really sat there and thought about it, you might be able to come up with them. But, you know, if I had asked you the same question a week after Christmas, it wouldn't have required a whole lot of thought. You would have known. Those things would have been fresh in your mind because they were still new to you. But as time goes on, most of the things that we receive as gifts become less and less meaningful to us. They become more and more ordinary with only a few very rare exceptions, generally speaking. And joy, Christian joy specifically, for the believer can all too often be the same. And so it's often more evident in new believers when it's still new, when it's still fresh, than it is in very experienced, uh, mature believers. Uh, It's also uh, very evidently present in people who have nothing to cling to but Christ. You know who one of the most joyful Christians I know is? Uh, He's a prison inmate uh, named John Copenhaver, uh, also known as War Machine. Uh, So yeah, this is the same John Copenhaver I'm talking about who used to fight in the UFC. But John and I are good friends, actually, and we speak on the phone regularly. And my wife will attest to the fact that every time I talk to him, I'm almost always in a better mood after talking to John. And you know why that is? It's because John is not only one of the most godly brothers I've ever met, but he's also one of the most joyful Christian brothers I've ever met. He became a Christian not long after his incarceration about seven years ago, and uh, it is so evident when you talk to him that he spends a lot of time reading and thinking about Jesus. In prison, what else does he have to really cling to when it comes to hope? It's evident that he clings to Christ and finds so much joy in Christ. And this makes perfect sense if you consider the fact that Paul's most joyful letter, which is his letter to the Philippians, was written under what circumstances? Anybody know? He was in prison. He was, yeah, he was incarcerated. Uh, think about that for a minute. Think about that. He was literally chained to a Roman guard. And he had a greater sense of joy than he had in any other letter that he wrote. Why do you think that is? It's because there weren't any distractions. He actually tells us in the fourth chapter where he writes in verses 12 and 13, he says, I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. So why was he joyful? Again, what does Christian joy mean? It's the inner confident contentedness that the Christian has because the Christian knows that Christ is in him, that Christ is with him, that Christ is for him, and that God is 
ordaining and directing everything in his life, working out all of his purposes and promises. And even while Paul was in chains, wondering if they were even going to kill him, Paul had this very confidence that God was in control, that God had ordained his circumstances for Paul's good and for God's glory. And so if Paul has much, he can rejoice in God's abundant provision. And if Paul has little, he can rejoice because that's what God ordained for Paul's greatest good and for God's glory. Either way, whatever his circumstances were, he could rejoice because he had Christ. And through Christ, he had union with God and the promise that God would faithfully work out his sovereign promises and purposes in Paul's life for Paul's greatest good and for God's glory. Now there are a very few specific and encouraging points that I want to make sure that you see in our verse here in John chapter 17. When I say his joy... Uh, when Jesus refers to his joy, what we mean is that he had a certain type of joy throughout his duration on earth, despite the fact that he was a man of many sorrows. So those two things aren't necessarily incompatible with one another, having joy and having sorrow. It is Christ's desire, however, that his people should experience his joy. His joy, not worldly joy. In the time of Nero, it was actually, believe it or not, it was potentially a capital crime to weep or to sigh. You know that? If, if you were upset visibly and people saw, especially publicly, you could be imprisoned, you could even be put to death for it. Uh, and Nero wasn't the only king or earthly leader in world history who had that expectation of his citizens, believe it or not. But it was considered by Nero to be a great dishonor to him that any citizen would be less than happy and content with their circumstances in life. After all, if he was the greatest ruler ever in the world, and I'm fairly certain that that's exactly what he thought he was, then there was no reason for anybody to be somber or downcast or to weep. Uh, anything uh, regarding sadness or dejection. Now, Nero's demand, we, we can look at that and kind of laugh that, uh, that, that somebody with so much power would even put people to death for being unhappy. But his demand was unrealistic because, you know, while he could provide some things, a lot of things for the citizens under his authority. He could never provide everything for everybody under his authority. He didn't know their individual needs person by person. And while he might be able to offer safety from bodily harm for a season, uh, first of all, he couldn't ever stop anybody from uh, ultimately dying. And secondly, he could never offer salvation to his people. But with Jesus, consider how great his love for you is. Does he know your needs? Absolutely. He knows your needs better than you do. He knows your needs. And he's promised to provide for all of your needs. 
He's proven Himself able to provide for your every need. He's ordained that all things would work together for your greatest good. All things. Every circumstance you have in life. Everything that you face. Ups, downs, in-betweens. It's all ordained by God for your greatest good and for His glory. He has saved you from the fires of hell. And He's saved you from the power of sin. What more could He do? But for us to not feel the kind of joy that He prays for here and that we're commanded to have would thus be to have a sense of dissatisfaction about what Jesus had done and what He has provided and what He has promised or some combination of those things. Here's what R.C. Sproul had to say on the matter. He wrote this. He said, quote, Over and over again in the pages of the New Testament, the idea of joy is communicated as an imperative, as an obligation. Based on the biblical teaching, I would go so far as to say that it is the Christian's duty, his moral obligation, to be joyful. That means that the failure of a Christian to be joyful is a sin that unhappiness and a lack of joy are in a certain way manifestations of the flesh, end quote. And I stand with R.C. on this. I propose that Christian joy is not only one of the wonderful blessings and privileges that we have in Christ, but it is also a duty. And I say that as somebody who's just like you, I, I catch myself sometimes lacking joy, lacking Christian joy. Uh, I'm just as human as you are. But when I catch myself lacking joy, here's what i found. i found that it's almost, almost, always because I'm clinging too loosely to Christ and I'm clinging too firmly to something that has to do with this world. And that could be almost a countless number of, of things. It could be my comforts. It could be my conveniences. It could be my personal rights. It could be almost anything, all of which are things of this world. But with that said, what we need to understand is that one of the first effects of loving the things of this world too much is a loss of the joy that is rightfully ours in Christ. Because ultimately, when we put anything before Christ, this is what happens. If we put a person before Christ, if we put anything before Christ, we will start to lose that sense of Christian joy. And so in light of this principle, Anthony Burgess notes that, quote, your joy must be in heavenly objects and from spiritual motives, from evangelical privileges, some joy in their honors, some in their pleasures, some in their lusts, but the joy of God's people is in and through Christ. End quote. Friend, if you are not experiencing, if you're not feeling Christian joy, if you're struggling to rejoice always in the Lord, forget always, just for five minutes, if you're struggling to rejoice in the Lord, let me just say this much to you. It's not because Christ has not blessed and provided for you sufficiently. That is not why you're not feeling 
Christian joy. His word attests to the fact that He has provided for you, that He has blessed you sufficiently. So, if you are lacking in joy, what do we do? We repent. We repent. We examine ourselves and figure out what are we clinging to before we're clinging to Christ. Look to Him. We cling to Him. We set our minds on Him, on heavenly matters, and we intentionally rejoice in what Christ has done for us. Now notice the connection here in verse 13 of John chapter 17 between these things and my joy made full in themselves. One of the surest cures for lacking Christian joy, if you're lacking Christian joy, is sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is one of the surest fixes for lacking Christian joy. One of the, these things that Jesus said in the farewell discourse was this. He said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things, he goes on to say, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. That's from chapter 15, verses 10 and 11. He says, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you. Spoken what? So that our joy, His joy may be in us. Abiding in Christ. Abiding in Christ. Do you want to feel Christ's joyfulness, then walk in the light. Do what God's Word instructs. There is absolutely a correlation between believing rightly and having a joyful spirit or attitude or or disposition about yourself. This is why Psalm 119 verses 14 to 16 says this. It says, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches, I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. So the psalmist here says that he had rejoiced in the way of God's testimonies. And as you go through the next couple of verses right after that, uh, you'll see that the word testimonies is actually parallel with your precepts. It's parallel with your statutes. It's parallel with your word. In other words, if you are lacking in Christian joy, one of the solutions, we might even call it a cure, is to read and to know His Word. To read and to know your Bible. To find and know sound doctrine. Now some Christians are only joyful and able to rejoice when the circumstances of their lives are pleasant, are, are easy, uh, carefree. In other words, the things that give joy to even unregenerate pagans are the only things that make certain Christians feel joyful as well. The Christian who struggles to feel Christian joy will rejoice when God gives them something that they can they can tangibly uh, make note of, that they can measure uh, as a blessing, like say a a pay raise or having a new friend or something like that. But those types of things make the world feel joy as well. So now we're talking about worldly joys. 
only somebody who's an unregenerate pagan will attribute their, uh, you know, the, the things that are making them feel joy, uh, not to being a blessing from God, but to their stars, uh, their lucky stars aligning properly or some other superstitious, nonsensical thing. But when an unregenerate pagan loses these things, when they lose what they have gained, they also lose their sense of joyfulness. They become distraught. They lose their sense of satisfaction. They lose their sense of contentedness. And this should not be true also of Christians, friends. Because we should have this quiet confidence, this contentedness, this satisfaction within us that whether we, whether we gain or whether we lose, blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives, He takes away. So whether, whether we gain, whether we lose, whether we have health or whether we have disease, we still, whatever the circumstances may be, we have always a gracious, loving, heavenly Father who loves to provide for us, who knows our needs better than we do, and who is therefore directing and ordaining each and every circumstance of our life for our greatest good and for His glory. And because we have Christ, the joy that He prayed we would have is rightfully ours, regardless of our life circumstances. Now, if your first thought upon hearing me say that, that sin is what prevents us from having Christian joy, if your re- first response to that is to say, oh, but my circumstances are so much harder than Paul's were, come on. Or, or if your first response is to say, oh, but life was so easy for the people in the psalmist's time. Life is so much more complicated today. Well, yes and No. If your first thought is to make any kind of excuse, let me just ask you this. Is it possible that you are thinking that way because you are struggling to believe that God is able to provide for you? Are you struggling possibly to believe that God is sovereign, that He's all-powerful, that He's all-knowing and knows your needs Or maybe you're even struggling to believe that He loves you. Is it possible that you're loving and clinging to the things of this world too tightly? See, Christian joy is completely unrelated to the circumstances of our lives. It's completely unrelated to what is happening in your life. That's what an unregenerate pagan's sense of joy is flows from. But the word circumstance refers to things that are outside of us. It refers to things that are external to us. Uh, The word circumstance uh, comes from two Latin words. Circum, which means around, as in like circumference, and stare, which means to stand. So circumstances are the things that are standing around us. Not within us, but around us. Again, they are external to us. But where's Christ? Is He external to us? Is is He outside of us? 
If, if he is, then yes, we have every reason in the world to have the deepest sorrow and to be completely lacking in Christian joy because access to Christian joy is not ours to be had if Christ is outside of us. If you are not in Christ, if you have not believed in him savingly, and you realize how unpredictable and unreliable and just frivolous your sense of joy is, how it's up one day, it's down the next day, depending on your circumstances, then here's your solution. Your solution is to repent and to believe in Jesus, to come to Him in faith, and this joy will be yours. Don't come to Jesus for the sake of having this joy. That's actually making joy into an idol. But come to Him that you may receive Him. Believe in Him that you may have Him. That you may rightfully receive forgiveness and be reconciled to God. And His joy will be rightfully yours. But for those of us who are in Christ, we know that Christ is not outside of us, is He? No, He he abides within us. He's in us. He's not external. He's within us. His presence with us is internal. In light of this truth, James Montgomery Boyce says this. He says, quote, So why worry about what is without if Christ is within? End quote. And he adds this. He says, To know that He is within and that He is directing us moment by moment, day by day, is the secret to that supernatural joy that is our rightful birthmark as God's children, end quote. So the first cure, if you are lacking joy, the first thing that you should do, family, is to set your mind on sound doctrine. To know and to learn sound doctrine and to set your mind on it. To know God. To know who He is. To know what God has promised. To know what pleases God. Where do you get that kind of information? Where do you find those kinds of things? Only in God's Word. Only in God's Word. So set your mind on Him. Set your mind on His Word. Set your mind on His promises. That's the first go-to cure for lacking Christian joy. That's why Paul instructed the Philippians in the same passage where he tells them to rejoice always in the Lord. He writes this, he says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. That's what he says in chapter 4, verse 8 of Philippians. Now, good by what standard? Good by the standard of God's Word. God's Word is the standard for what is good, what is noble, what is excellent. Friends, this isn't just a friendly suggestion that Paul gives to the Philippians, and it's not just a friendly suggestion for you and me either. This is a command to dwell on these types of things and to rejoice in the Lord always. It's a command that we should follow. Follow it at all times, but especially when you're feeling like you are lacking a sense of Christ's joy in you. The process of learning to respond 
with joy when you're facing trials and tribulations and difficult, challenging circumstances in life must begin with a conscious awareness that God is with you, that God is for you, and that if God is for you, what can stand against you? Will that give you confidence if you really believe that? Will that give you contentedness and satisfaction if you really believe that? Yes, it will. If you're feeling a lack of joy, praise the Lord. Your awareness is like that, uh, that light going on on your dashboard in your car. The first, uh, the most obvious cure for lacking Christian joy, according to what Jesus says here, is sound doctrine. A second cure for lacking Christian joy is fellowship. Fellowship. Fellowship is twofold. First, we have fellowship with God. That comes first, our fellowship with God. And secondly, because of our fellowship with God, flowing out of our fellowship with God, we have fellowship with God's people. Both of those things are vitally important to our joy. They're vital in order for us to feel and experience this sense of Christian joy. As we go through all of these qualities and characteristics that Jesus prays for in the verses to come, by the way, what we're going to see is that Jesus Himself is the epitome of all these things. He Himself sets the perfect example for each one of these things. So how does He set the example for being joyful? Well, Jesus was joyful, even though He was despised and hated by men, and even though He was a man of many sorrows. How do we know that? Because His, his words here, because of the text at hand here, it speaks of His joy. He prays that the disciples, and, and us by extension, that, that we would experience His joy. And in moments when Christ might have been tempted to lose His sense of joy, one of the things that he would do is he would withdraw from sometimes the disciples, often from the people that he was ministering to, and he would go and he would have fellowship with the Father. He'd withdraw from the masses to pray and to have communion, fellowship with the Father. When he couldn't withdraw, for example, when he was on the cross, it was nevertheless his fellowship with the Father that sustained him until the moment that the Father forsook Him. Just as fellowship with God sustained Jesus and gave Jesus joy, even in the midst of the worst possible, the worst imaginable circumstances, it will also sustain you. And it will also give you joy. But we must remember that our fellowship with God and our fellowship with God's people aren't two different things. They aren't disconnected. Instead, they are actually linked together inseparably. That's why we have all the one another commands in Scripture. It's also why John would write in 1 John chapter 1, verses 3-4, to he said, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. If you're struggling to, to experience a sense of, of Christian joy, is it possible that it's because you've surrounded yourself with worldly people? That the fellowship you have 
is with the wrong types of people? Is it possible that you haven't made a serious effort to get close with other Christians, specifically to your church family? Is it possible that you've mistakenly thought that you could just get by on your own, having nothing but your own independent, isolated fellowship with God, and that's it? Well, I have news for you if that's the case. It doesn't work that way. You are not created just to have fellowship with God, but not with His people. You can't have one without the other. You can't have fellowship with God's people without fellowship with God. And fellowship with God includes having fellowship with God's people. We are created that way. It has never worked any other way, and it never will. You need fellowship with the body of Christ, and the body of Christ needs fellowship with you. So the first cure for lacking a sense of Christian joy is solid, sound biblical doctrine. And a second cure is fellowshipping with God and His people. If you're lacking a sense of joy, go to the Lord in prayer. Experience fellowship with Him there, yes. But also, find a way to get connected with God's people. Because we're also supposed to pray for one another, are we not? We're supposed to bear one another's burdens, are we not? And so if somebody's lacking a sense of joy, we want to be praying for each other about those things. A third solution is one that should be fairly obvious, I think. You must be living a life that is devoted to walking in obedience with the Lord. That is, you must be holy. Sin will break your fellowship. It will destroy your intimacy with God. And when that happens, it will also break your fellowship with God's people. Sin will prevent you from feeling Christian joy. And when it does, once again, praise the Lord, because once again, it's like that light on the dashboard coming on, like a light that shines in bright red. Hey, you're sinning too much. You need to repent. Turn from your sin. Turn to Christ. Cling to Him. Walk as He walked. Abide in Him. Obey His commands. In the verses that follow, which we're going to see as we continue in the weeks to come, Jesus will pray about our separation from the world. We're not to be in it. We're in it, but we're not to be of it. We're to be separate from the world. And the reason that we're to be separated from the world is not to deprive us of joy, but to make His joy in us full. So we're to be in the world, but not of it. Sinning involves not walking with the Lord. And what a blessing it is whenever we realize our lack of Christian joy when we don't walk with Him in obedience, when we're not striving and fighting for personal holiness. The answer is simple. It's so simple, friends. Repent again. And again, and again, the Christian life is one of continual repentance. And every time you do, remember, know, cling to the promise that His grace is sufficient to restore your walk with Him. Listen, friends, every Christian, every Christian has every reason to experience Christian joy, Christ's joy, in every circumstance. His desire is that you may know 
this joy, His joy, the joy that He, as the sinless one, exemplified throughout His life and even in the worst possible situations. And so may each of you have such deep and close fellowship with Him that the joy of His life will also be the joy of your lives. To have His joy, we have to grow in His likeness. We have to become more and more like Him, trusting our lives in His hands, devoting ourselves to the glory of God, and devoting ourselves to walking in His will. That's where Jesus found His joy, and that's where you'll find His joy as well. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word, for the way that it can comfort us, for the way that it instructs us, sometimes for the way that it confronts us, sometimes for the way that it convicts us. And so we pray, Lord, that You would forgive us for the times in which we have clung too tightly to the things of this world, to the times when we have failed to rejoice, the times that we've failed to feel joy because we've put something in our lives before You. So we pray, O Lord, that You would give us conviction to repent of these things, that You would keep us and preserve us as we turn from these things, that we would turn from these things by the power of the Holy Spirit, And once again, walk in obedience to you, to Christ, and that we may once again experience His joy in having fellowship with you, in having contentedness in knowing that you are working out all things according to your plans and purposes, and that nothing can thwart what you have purposed to do. O Lord, draw us close. Teach us to cling to nothing but Christ and to see all other things as blessings, as circumstances that are only making us more like Him, given to us for that purpose. And teach us, O Lord, to rejoice in the Lord always, that He would be glorified in our lives and in our joy. It's in His name we pray. Amen.